Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. It's a phrase that we hear a lot, especially if you grew up in a Christian home. Jesus loves you. And at one time, I suppose that phrase meant the world to us. But as we hear it more and more over the years, that precious phrase loses its value. We forget what that means. Jesus loves me. I could remember the first time when Lydia told me she loved me. No girl had ever told me that before. My mom doesn't count because she's supposed to love me. But she, Lydia didn't have to love me. And I remember the first time she told me that. And though I kind of felt that she felt that way, but to hear it for the first time, wow, that, that meant something to me. And I could tell you where it was and when it was it first happened. Love is a funny thing. If you've never fallen in love, you're curious as to how it works. And once it's happened, you don't know how to explain how it happened. It's just, it happens, and uh, the Bible talks about love often. And though I love my wife, and I know she loves me, and the day that she told me she did was a fantastic and wonderful time. And maybe you grew up in a, a family where your mom and dad showed you their love for you often. They show kindness and acts to you, and they did things for you to sit down as a kid and go, wow, my, my parents love me. I remember when I was a kid, I had uh, asthma very severely when I was a child. And luckily, I grew out of it, as a lot of, a lot of children do. And I was in the hospital for six days once, and I was there. And not only that, uh, I was there because I woke up one morning, I couldn't breathe. And it was about, uh, I guess it was like 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. My parents were still out in the, on the couch talking to each other. And I remember coming out. I couldn't breathe. And my, my mom said my lips are turning blue. And she knew what that meant. So she grabbed my, uh, my, my asthma machine. We called it my Darth Vader mask. And I think they have better technology nowadays. But they had this mask and they had to put it over me. And I had to put the, I don't even remember what the name of the medication was. And they had to put it inside and... And I was inhaling, and it wasn't working this time. First time it ever not worked. So he rushed me to the hospital, and I was in there for six days. And every, every step of the way, my mom was right there. She never left my side. Uh, my brother probably hated that. He had to stay in the hospital the whole time, too. But when my dad would come back from work, he would work late nights. He wouldn't come home and go straight to bed. He'd swing by the hospital. He'd stay up with me. Until my mom made him, I could hear him saying, honey, go home. You need to sleep. We need the money so my son can stay in the hospital. <laughs> go to sleep or get better and get out of the hospital. That's what I meant. And I know that my parents love me. And, and even as children, it's easy to take our parents' love for granted. Love is easy to be taken for granted. There's a story about a young lady. Her name was Anna Warner. She was born in 1827. She could trace her lineage back to the Puritan pilgrims on both sides of her family. Her father's name was Henry Warner, a well-known New York City lawyer, originally from the New England area. And her mother, also his name, was Anna. 
They were from a wealthy, fashionable family in New York's Hudson Square in the early 1820s. When Warner was a young child, her mother passed away, and her father's sister, Fanny, came to live with the Warners. Although Henry Warner had been a successful lawyer, he lost most of his fortune in the Great Panic of 1837 and in subsequent lawsuits and poor investments. The family had to leave their mansion in New York and move to an old ramshackled Revolutionary War era farmhouse on Constitution Island near West Point in New York. In 1849, seeing a severe change in finances, the two sisters, Susan and Anna, started writing to earn money. Both sisters became devout Christians in the late 1830s. And after their conversion, they became confirmed members of the Presbyterian Church and would later give their life to serve the Lord. Together, the sisters would write a total of over 100 novels together. Neither sister married, but held regular Bible studies for West Point cadets. Their uncle, Reverend Thomas Warner, was the academy chaplain of West Point. Anna wrote a fresh hymn for her Sunday school class every month. It's also believed that America's 34th president, Dwight Eisenhower, was one of the last cadets to attend Anna's class as he graduated the year of Anna's death. But in one of Anna's most famous novels, a novel simply called Say and Seal, in this novel she wrote about a young lady who fell in love with a Christian school teacher. And in this novel, the Christian school teacher at one point was sitting alongside the bed of a young boy who was dying. The boy as far as we can tell from the novel, the boy was saved, and, but was still nervous about meeting Jesus. Nervous about the whole process, as anybody should be. And according to the novel, this teacher went up to the young child, sat down next to him, and in the novel he said this poem to help the child through his hard time. The poem goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. After uh, two years of this novel being written, a famous musician, Dr. William Bradbury, who had dedicated himself to teaching and writing and publishing music, over his lifetime published over 59 sacred hymns of the faith. A few you may recognize. He leadeth me, just as I am, sweet hour of prayer. And of course, after reading the novel, got the rights to write a chorus and the tune for the song we know today, Jesus Loves Me. Anna outlived her sister by more than 30 years, but the popularity of the song grew far surpassed her lifetime. It was said, too, that during that, those times and during even uh, World War II, that the 
military cadets of that time could be heard down the hallway as a group singing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Today their house, the Warner family, is still there and apparently has some historical value to it and you can even go by and see it today. But you know that, that tune, Jesus Loves Me, oftentimes is one of the first songs we ever learn. If you grew up in a Christian home in a church, that's probably one of the first songs you may have remembered. Even in sign language, the first song I ever learned was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because it's such a simple song with such a simple meaning. But why is it that we hear the phrase, Jesus loves me, and we... Just pass that phrase. How many times have you stopped and just thought about what that means? Jesus loves me. We're talking about God. The same God that wrote Genesis 1-1, that created this world in six days. The same God that created planet upon planet and universe upon universe. That same God decides to love each of us individually. Wow. Throughout the Bible, we can see three compelling truths about the love of Jesus. And the first one, I can't help but turn to John chapter 3 and verse 16. The first compelling truth we see about the love of Jesus is his love saves us. His love saves us. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, some of you don't even need to turn there because you know this verse so well. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, what? Everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You realize today that the fact that we can even have a chance that we are on our way to heaven today is because God loves us. The whole fact that we have a church here today is because God loves us. The fact that we're even alive here today, that God created us in the first place and hasn't destroyed us, is because He loves us. His mercy is overflowing. It's, it's endless. Christ, it was Christ's love for us that compelled Him to leave heaven. You hear talk of missionaries leaving their home and comforts to live in a third world country, far away from the comforts of their home, to uproot their family and move to a city and a country where their comforts are gone now, away from maybe even electricity. They live in jungles and they live in all these places and you think to yourself, wow. You hear talk of perhaps some of you have done similar things. You've moved from your home and you've come here and you have times where you miss home and you miss family, you miss your homeland. But nothing can compare to the day when Christ moved from heaven to earth. No part, no place in this world can compare to leaving perfect paradise in heaven and coming here. Who would do that? Now don't get me wrong, there's a lot of beautiful places in this world. God created it. He's got, he, he, he's a good artist. He knows what he's doing. There's so many different beautiful landscapes and places to live on this earth. And I know not all the world is evil and corrupt. There's some good people and some good places on this world. But nobody in their right mind would leave perfect paradise and come here. 
unless there was a reason, unless there was a purpose. And what compelled God to do that? His love. It was Christ's love that compelled him to suffer. In Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 3, the Bible says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shears is dumb. So, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from the prison and from the judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Verse 10 says, And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Jesus loved us. It was his love that compelled him to leave heaven. It compelled him to suffer and die for us. Why did Jesus go all the way to the cross? Because he was bored? No, because he loves you and he loved me. There was a point where Jesus even said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What pushed him, what compelled him to go to the cross? Because he loves you and because he loves me. It was Christ's love that compelled him to forgive us, to forgive you. Not only did, he, did his love compel him to leave heaven and compel him to suffer and die for us, but he had to do his, that love had to push him one step more and to forgive us. Now we live here today. Many of us know God's word. We, we know the story of Jesus Christ, how we came to earth and how we died. But many of us still continually live in sin. We still choose a life contrary to what God would have. And some of us still have the nerve sometimes to turn around and say, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. I don't deserve it. In fact, I keep messing up in the same thing over and over again. Lord, I, you, you, don't, you don't need to, you don't, I don't deserve you to forgive me this one last time. God, please forgive me. And if God was human, he would say, sorry, <laughs> your time is up. You've been failing over and over and over and over again, and I already know you're going to do it again probably later on. I know the life you're going to live. I know the people you hang around with. I know your personality. I know who you are. I'm God. I know your future. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to cut it short here and just say no more forgiveness. That's what a human would say. But God's love is unconditional. It's not based on condition. My parents love me There's a, because I'm their child. My parents can't possibly love all the children in the world. They, maybe they say they could and they can try, but they love me. I'm their son. 
the condition upon my love, their love for me is the fact that I'm one of them. I'm their, their blood. There's a, there's a condition involved here. Oftentimes we love people because they're nice to us and we're nice to them and there's a, there's a common bond. But if they were to turn their back on us and do something evil and horrendous and terrible to us, that love would be cut off. No more. The condition upon which our love had has now been broken. But you realize today that God's love doesn't have a condition. That's why God can love a murderer. He can love a rapist. He can love anybody in this world because there's no condition of it. God just loves. That's, that doesn't make sense to humanity. It's, it's beyond us. There must have a condition. But it's his love that compelled him to leave heaven, to suffer, and to follow through with 1 John 1.9. that says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow. God loves us. God loves us. His love, first of all, saves us. Secondly, His love comforts us. His love comforts us. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 56. Psalm 56. Psalm 56. The love of God is something far beyond much of what we could ask or even imagine. And we hear this phrase so much, Jesus loves us, and it's easy to forget. But I want us to understand that his love not only saved us, but it can comfort us on a day-by-day basis. Psalms chapter 56, verse 3, the Bi- or verse number 1, excuse me, the Bible says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He, fighting daily, oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me. O thou most high. But here it is, verse 3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Wow. I remember as a child learning this verse, and many times reciting this verse over and over again sitting at my bed at night when it's dark and hearing strange noises outside saying, what time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. What time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. I remember being, uh, even as a child, driving through the snow in the Arctic where we used to live and being so scared and nervous and in my mind saying, what time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. What time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. I remember so many times, even just this morning, sitting in the chair, getting ready to come up to preach, saying, what time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. Time, I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. Maybe you're a teenager and you're sitting in your chair and you're getting ready to call up for maybe a public speaking matter or a test is about to come, a really, really important test that you just got to nail. What time, I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. You can put your faith and trust in God, no matter who you are, where you are in life. That's the kind of God that we serve. You know, Psalms chapter 20 and verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Oh, you can put your trust in man if you want. I wouldn't. You can put your trust and faith, your full trust and faith in a lot of things in life, but I challenge you today to put your faith in God. Not that you can't ever trust humanity. You can't trust one another, and you can. But boy, when it comes down to it, when you really, really need something that won't fail you, that won't back down on you, put your trust in God. Because chariots can fail you. Horses won't last forever, but the name of our God will. 
Oh, I love this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And guess what? The people answered him not a word. Elijah on top of Mount Carmel, you know this story. It's an amazing story. Elijah won versus 850 prophets. He gives them an option. He says, look, turn to God or turn to Baal. Which one? And the people said, well, I, don't, I don't know. You want to know why they couldn't? They couldn't put their faith and trust in Baal? How can you? Who is Baal compared to great God? What has Baal ever done for them? Oh, I'm sure they've given credit to some of the things that God did, and they gave that credit to Baal. But they couldn't speak a word because they didn't have their full trust and faith in Baal. But Elijah, oh, he did. And he proved it. Elijah had his 100% trust in God because God has come through to him before. Oh, but Baal couldn't do that. I heard a story once from uh, uh, a story, a novel written by Robert Louis Stevens. He tells of a storm that caught a vessel off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the midst of the terror, as a boat shook to and fro, the passengers below the deck, one passenger so scared, he made a dangerous passage climbing up the stairs to try to find the pilot. As he made a dangerous passage to the pilot house, he saw the steerman, the pilot, at his post, holding the wheel, unwavering through the storm, inch by inch, turning the ship out once more back to sea. The pilot saw the watcher through the glass, and he gave the passenger a big smile as he steered through the storm. Then the daring passenger went below deck and gave out a note of cheer to the scared passengers below and said, I have seen the face of the pilot. And he smiled. All is well. Oh, the passengers were scared, but when they saw the pilot smiling, unconcerned about the waves, the passengers now realized the pilot's got it. Everything is under control. And you may be going through life, and boy, you may be going through some big waves up and down, maybe for your life or your family's life or someone else's life that's burdening you. I don't know where you're at in life, what kind of storms and trials you go through. You could always put your faith and trust in God. You can put your comfort in God because that's what God's love does. It's comforting. As a child, when things are going not going your way, you can put your comfort in your parents. Oh, but what kind of comfort can we put? and a great God. His love saves us. His love comforts us. And lastly, this morning, His love constrains us. We're back in our passage now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The verse that was read for us just a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God's love, so wonderful and amazing, it saves us. His love comforts us. But most importantly, his love constrains us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, back to verse 14. The Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. 
Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The love of God constrains us, compels us to live for him. It's a cycle. God shows his love for us. He saves us from our sins. He allows us to be one of his children. Now as we live through earth, when we go through hard times, that love is still there. We can cling to that love when the hard times come through comfort. But because that love is never ending, it never fades, it just keeps pumping, it keeps coming our way, that love compels us, it constrains us now to live our life for him. The problem today is many Christians, we know that God's love saved us, and boy, when we need comfort, we know where to come. We come to church, we call the pastor, we start praying all of a sudden, we go to God, we know his love is there. But what about the rest of our life? Does his love constrain you to live for him? Does his love compel you to go the extra mile? I always think, what caused the Apostle Paul to do all that he did? To suffer the way he did? To be persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, rejected? This is love for Jesus. Many times we think to ourselves, man, I wish I had that kind of zeal for God. The problem, however, seems to be us. If Paul's motivating factor to keep serving was his love for God, then we today need to check our motivations for serving God. Perhaps you find yourself unmotivated to come to church or to get involved in ministry, to help in other ministries, to come to soul winning regularly, to read your Bible every day, to communicate to God in prayer every day. Maybe you find yourself lacking motivation for this. If this is you, perhaps the reason is your love for God. It's not where it once was, or not where it needs to be. You may love Him for saving you, and you may even give Him credit for some of the good things that's happened to you in the past, but do you love God? Do you love Jesus? If you really loved God, you would find a way to come soul winning as much as you could. Wouldn't you? If you really loved God, you would witness. You couldn't, you, they couldn't, nobody could stop you from witnessing. If you really loved God, you would find a way to get to church as much as possible. If we really loved God, we would find a way to get here for Sunday school. If we really loved God, we would come to every prayer meeting that was available to us. If we really loved God, you would read your Bible every day with ease. If we really loved God, we wouldn't make up excuses not to come to church. Instead, we'd be making up excuses to come to church. If we really loved God, we would be doing everything we could to see our children serving God and living for Him as much as possible. If we really loved God. The problem is, most of us don't have God's love on the highest pedestal of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, and Lord, I'll let you know when I need you. That's not love. I know that there are special circumstances that stop us from doing certain things. But I fear that many, many times, we don't do anything to try to change these circumstances. Perhaps work has us placed 
at a time. That's, that's where church might be or ministry might be. And when was the last time we tried, we begged God to change our schedule, to move things around? When was the last time we asked our boss and pleaded and said, Lord, if this is your will for me to come, allow this to take place in my life? Or have we just given up? I believe the only difference between the Apostle Paul and us today is our love for God. That's the difference. I don't know that... We know that God came upon Saul and Paul... He was able to do miracles and perform. But later on in his life, what pushed him, what drove him? If Paul didn't have that love for God, he would have stopped right away. In Psalm chapter 63, the Bible says this, verse 1. A Psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah, David says, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth. For thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings, I will rejoice. Do you long for God? Do you thirst after him? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. We know that Jesus loves us, but how much do we love him? Let's all stand as we talk to the Lord this morning.